Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This month's program, entitled A Friend Indeed, is sponsored by COGS Expo and features the music of A Halo Called Fred. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our heroes, the trio had been separated by the ambitions of a doctor determined to discover if two consciousnesses could inhabit a single body. Sage has become defensive and secretive, increasingly convinced of the moral imperative to follow her every scientific notion to conclusion without the usual steadying hand of philosophy. It is as if killing Cunningham has somehow unchained the ethical reasoning of philosophical science from the cold and bitter electricity of the galvanist. For a while, Sage kept up appearances with her friends, but she began to make flimsy excuses to keep them out of the laboratory. Abigail and the professor, grown suspicious of the sudden gaps the doctor has inserted into their transmigration schedule, made an unscheduled visit to the laboratory and discovered Sage's deception. The doctor's recall was set for mid-afternoon, and as the clock chimes 3 p.m., Petronella Sage returns to herself to find her friends waiting. Abigail, you startled me. You did not expect us to be here when you returned. That would have been most neglectful of us. Most unscientific. Entirely reckless. And a sign of marked disregard. The doctor sat up, her mind spinning with excuses, prevarications, and delaying tactics. In the end, she settled for simplicity. I am sorry. You were right. I should have waited. Whatever could have caused you to go off alone like that? You know Abigail and I fully support your work. I know. I got excited. I've cracked the formula for translateral migration. Translateral? You mean that is why the temporal markers were set for a current time? Yes, I've discovered how to go anywhere in the world now, today. Not only are the past and future both open to us, but the present as well. Well, that's 
good news, I suppose, but why go it alone? Why not take one of us along? You both have other important things to do. Your coursework, Abigail, and your book, Erasmus. It was just a simple theory test, and I didn't think it would be a problem. Nor did I imagine it would hold any great interest for you. After all, there is no need for anthropological knowledge in modern-day Paris. So you were in Paris. Why Paris? Calypso. You went to see Calypso? In a body not your own? Now, Erasmus, don't jump to ill conclusions. Calypso knows the full tenor of my research. It was not difficult for her to encompass my presence at her doorstep. But we still don't know how she found out about your research. We don't know where the funds are coming from. We don't know what plans she might have for your inventions. There is a great deal we do not know. You were correct. But what I do know is that Calypso has been nothing but supportive of my work. She has encouraged me to deepen my research, to expand the boundaries of my knowledge. She believes in me and in the Transmigration Project. And that is good enough for me. Now, if you will excuse me. Her stunned friends watch as the doctor storms off to the showers in a huff. Well, that went better than it might have. Thinking it was best to give Petra time to cool off, the professor and Abigail choose to exit the laboratory and live to fight another day. A week passed where things seemed to have returned to normal. Petra ceased traveling without companions, and she even seemed to bring the professor up to date on all of her latest advances. Erasmus was feeling much relieved and might have relaxed all vigilance, were it not for a niggling little voice that told him all was still not well. Oh, Abigail, I was just on my way to the laboratory. I, I did not expect to see you here. Hello, Professor. Dr. Siege dismissed me after I checked my creatures this morning. I hadn't anything else to do, so I came here for a spot of tea. She dismissed you again? Are we not transmigrating today? Well, I had thought you were. My first class on Thursdays is not until two, and I thought that, well, I'd assist in sending you off, but... Hmm. And, and how goes the animal husbandry? Oh, well, I'm very much enjoying learning about the multi-chambered stomachs. Such an interesting way of processing nourishment without impacting such practical matters as... Uh, I'm sorry, Abigail. I don't mean to be rude, but I only ask reflexively. While I'm sure your studies are diverting in the utmost, I'm afraid I can hardly spare the attention necessary to understand a subject so far out of my own milieu whilst worried about Petra. No offense, but I think we have greater matters to consider than the digestive tracts of ruminants. No, of course, you're right. Do you believe Dr. Sage is doing something she shouldn't? Well, I'm not sure. She really hasn't been acting like herself since... Can I... <laughs> was since she installed the guest in her spare room. Have you noticed anything out of the ordinary? When it comes to Dr. Petronella Sage, everything is out of the ordinary. You have a point. Has Petra had any appointments I'm unaware of? Any obligations to the surgical department? I don't think so. The reattachment trials were successful, and in the wake of Cunningham's departure, there hasn't been a push to assign her any other projects. I think the college has decided it might be best to allow her to toil in obscurity for a while. Yes, it does seem that in her passion to make her mark scientifically, she has forgotten all the real work that is required to get a university to acknowledge and support that science. 
Do you think we should confront her? Demand to know what she's up to? Oh, I've been loath to take that step. Petronella has never taken kindly to being challenged, but without the pressure to maintain at least some small modicum of compliance with the college and the provost, I fear her for her sanity. Gracious! Can it really be that bad? To be honest, I have no real idea how bad it is. But one thing is clear. Things are not as calm as they appear. She is up to something, I am certain. She has been doing an awful lot of calculating lately. She keeps her blackboards covered, and I haven't wanted to peek below the covers to see the formulas. I figured that she would share them when she was ready. Pardon me for my ignorance, but why would she have moved back to the boards? Is that not more the work of theoretical stages? I just assumed that she'd had the formula for transmigration well and truly worked out by now. There shouldn't be anything that requires physics specifically at this point. Well, beyond the upgraded equipment, that is. But she did the calculations for those on paper. It was quick work to find the right combination of electrical impulse against thickness of copper. Do you think the calculations might be for a new project? Something the university ordered? I don't think so. Or at least, if it is, then she has excluded me. There is always paperwork in triplicate for laboratory projects, and all assistants must sign before work begins. As I suspected, Petra is up to something. As much as I hate to admit this, I think I'd better go and confront her. Care to join me? How long do you believe the university will leave the lower laboratory empty? The science department has been in disarray all term, since the resignation of Cunningham, that is. Dean Stewart is campaigning for them to choose a woman provost, and Dr. McNeish is fighting tooth and nail to get the position himself. He probably will in the long run, but the college board wants it to appear as if they at least considered a woman for the position. It is good optics to be seen as willing to advance the careers of female scientists, even if you have no intention of really doing so. My, that is a more cynical view than you usually take. It is not cynical at all, Professor. It is the reality that women face in every profession that has been long since ruled by the masculine sex. Change comes in increments. Luckily, they can only give consideration without positions for so long before their hypocrisy is exposed. It is still progress, if a very frustrating and slow version of such. Good morning, Pat. Oh. Dr. Sage is not in situ. Or... Perhaps more specifically, her body is here reclined on the slab and wired for a long journey, but her consciousness is elsewhere. She's transmigrated without me. Can you tell where she's gone? Hmm. The location sentences indicate France, but the temporal ones are set for now. So what she claimed is true. She can transmigrate just to another place, but stay in the now. Technically, what is now except another point along the continuum of time? And she has perfected targeting to the point that she can specify thousands of particular points in space. Why not have the same control over time? After all, 
This very minute is happening in Paris and Boston and Timbuktu, all places that would require travel from here to reach, and transmigration is a form of travel. The problem must be more dire than I allowed myself to consider, especially since she was going on about developing a method of inhabiting living bodies. But what would happen to the existing consciousness? Well, exactly. Inhabiting living bodies is an ethical minefield, let alone a moral horror show. No person should ever have their body used by another without consent. I can't understand why Petra does not see this. What can we do? Shall we recall her? I don't think that is our best course of action. Petra would be livid at having her purpose subverted, and there's no reasoning with her when she's angry. No, you'd better send me where she is. I can find out what she is up to, and that should help us decide our best course of action. All right, that makes sense. You suit up, and I'll prep your trajectory. Savant hurries to change into Faraday armor. His concern for Petra is rapidly blooming into fear. Once he is dressed, he returns to the central dais and takes his place on the plinth. I'm not sure the resonator will work to put you within proximity since you are not transmigrating at the same time, but I have used the exact coordinates and Dr. Sage has greatly improved targeting over the past few weeks. This should land you close to her. I wish we could know what gender, age, and general shape you should be looking for. I'll start at La Charge d'Affaire, and if she's not there, I guess I'll just have to rely on good old Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> but that only works because it is anachronistic. Even Parisians must know all the songs now. I hadn't thought of that. I guess I'll have to rely on my ability to recognize Petra, no matter what her form. How long would you like to search? I'd say 24 hours. If I can't find her in that time, I'll return and we can go to Plan B. Hmm. What is Plan B? We'll have to figure that out if Plan A doesn't work. Abigail set the recall mechanism and fired up the dynamo to send the professor on his way. Good luck and Godspeed, professor! Will the professor find Dr. Sage, and if so... Will our doctor be willing to share her latest endeavors with her friend? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of A Halo Called Fred.
And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, Professor Savant was embarking on a mission to find the wayward doctor. He has awakened in Paris, under a pile of rags at the back of a small cobbled alley between buildings on the Rue de Seine. The professor finds himself in the body of a street urchin, dead of malnutrition. While the good news is that this body has no need of surgical triage, the bad news is that without immediate drink and nutrients, the form will not be able to sustain life. By sheer force of will, Savant pulls the body to its feet and stands swaying a moment before stumbling to the mouth of the alley. The street in front of him is a typical Parisian boulevard full of hurrying pedestrians, street vendors, and every manner of carriage and conveyance, including a few noisy motor cars. There is something essential to the experience of Paris that involves spending time on its streets, shopping, drinking, or eating. Paris is a city that truly lives in the streets, and the scene before the professor confirms this fact. Cafes line the sidewalks, and the scent of freshly baked bread wafts strong enough to defeat the smells of the muddy river. Luckily for Erasmus, there are many people whom he can ask for help. Please, could you spare some bread? No, va-t'en! I beg your pardon. May, may I get a glass of tea? Pardon me, Joe. Please. Can you help a starving boy? Oh, toi pauvre cher. You posing. Sit down. I will get you some soup. A kindly woman with a great ship's prow of a bosom in the latest pigeon-breasted shirtwaist sits him in a chair and covers his grimy clothes with a large cloth napkin. At another time, Erasmus might find her fussing intrusive, but he is weak with hunger and distracted by worry, so he lets the woman fuss over him. She brings a bowl of steaming broth and a large chunk of crusty bread and sets it on the table in front of him. Erasmus smiles at her gratefully and greedily drinks the broth. Slow down, my boy. If you drink it too fast, you will not keep it. Erasmus knows she is right, but it is a real struggle to set the bowl down. He has never felt such hunger in his life. He wonders if this is how Petra felt on the raft of the Medusa. His own return after months in the desert had been traumatic, and his focus had been entirely on regaining his own health. He hadn't thought to ask Petra about her own awful experiences. Taking the kind woman's advice, he picked up the bread still warm from the oven and tore off a very small piece to chew on. Yes, that is it, mon cher, little by little. Well, thank you. Can you tell me what street I'm on? The Rue de Seine, of course. Are you lost? Oh, no, I would... yes. I'm looking for Le Charge d'Affaires. Oui, I believe Le Charge d'Affaires is on the street. How very like his friend to view the amazing new technology of the telephone as passé, when the newer technology of transmigration would allow for face-to-face -face communication. Erasmus sat back and carefully enjoyed the rest of his broth and bread. His search had just become a great deal less complicated. When he finished, he thanked the woman profusely for her kindness and set off in the direction she indicated he would find Le Chargé de la Faire. 
He reached the correct address, but before he could ring the bell, the front door opened and a woman stepped out, followed by a very handsome and well-dressed young man. I'm very excited for you to meet Madame Curie. She is one of the most brilliant scientific minds of your era and will do great things in the future. Things on par with transmigration. And you know her inventions in her own name, even though she's married. Yes, Marie Curie was one of the first to be celebrated in her own right. She was the pebble that diverted the stream. Eventually, the time comes when women are given the full credit for their scientific work. Erasmus recognized Petra in the guise of the well-dressed young man, and when the woman leading the way said the word transmigration, a number of tumblers turned into place. That must be Calypso with Petra. But if they're simply going to meet another scientist, perhaps Abigail and I are overreacting. And you believe that Marie Curie's investigations into magnetism might hold the key to my problems? Well, I'm not the physicist you are, but if my understanding of her theories are correct, yes. Understanding magnetic wave structures might be just the element necessary for you to succeed at transmigratory cohabitation. Imagine the research possibilities if so. Petra, no! Unable to hear the professor's internal scream, the doctor and Calypso walked down the boulevard in animated conversation. Erasmus, overtaken by a sudden wave of dizziness, collapses on the stair. His body convulses, ejecting the recently consumed bread and broth. The violence of the fit is too much for the poor, starved body to withstand, and Erasmus vacates as the boy dies. When Erasmus came to on the slab, his first thought was that he should sound the recall chime and bring Petra home immediately. But by the time he was unbuckled and standing, he realized that her potential reaction would be to shut he and Abigail out completely. He needed to know what Petra was up to, what her aims and plans were, so that he could confront her with all of it. He quickly changed into his own clothes and then went down into the main campus to find Abigail. He finds her just as her lecture is wrapping up. In geriticular rumen, there are other most closer associations between different species of microorganisms where both gain from the presence of the other, and these are described as syntrophic relationships. In a syntrophic relationship, one species of microorganism, the recipient, uses, as a growth substrate, a waste product of the metabolism of another species, the donor, and as the result of removal of the waste product, the growth of the donor species is improved. The benefit is not just one way. Within the reticulorumen, the waste products commonly utilized are hydrogen, carbon dioxide, lactate, and succinate, and we shall examine the patterns of energy metabolism in the species that produce and in the species that use these materials and live in syntrophic relationships when we meet again next week. And don't forget, your papers on microorganisms in the reticular rumen are due on my desk by Friday midday. Abigail, Abigail, ho! Professor, is everything all right? I didn't expect to see you before tomorrow morning. Oh, I'm fine, but are you available? Well, I have this paper that I really need to finish up. I wouldn't ask if it weren't important. Of course not, I realize that. Give me ten minutes to drop off my books at the resident hall, and I'll meet you at the laboratory. 
I assume the nature of the problem has its lotus there? As always, thank you, Abigail. As the professor hurries back to the laboratory, he is stopped in the hall by Dr. McNeish, the head of surgery at King's. Well, hello again, Professor Savant. I hope all is well. Why, yes, Dr. McNeish, Th- things are well. Oh, good, good. I've been meaning to ask you, old man. I've noticed that you spend a great deal of time here in the medical wing. Are you looking for a change of speciality, sir? What? No, not at all. So you're here for more personal reasons, hmm? What are you implying? Oh, nothing to raise your hackles, my good man. It's just that if your own Petronella were to be considering marriage, well, I just wanted you to know that the faculty of the medical wing would all be in favor of such a union. (laughs) Is that so? And would that favor be because you wish Petra every happiness or because you would be happy to see her married and rendered impotent in science. Oh, yes. Oh, no. I I have no beef with Dr. Sage after all. Thanks to her efforts, we now have the ability to surgically reattach severed limbs and are well on our way to developing limb reattachment protocols. Dr. Sage will be made famous by the McLeish Sage Raymond Reattachment and Nerve Stimulation process. You added your name to the process. How dare you? That process was entirely conceived, conceptualized, and created by Petronella Sage. You only had a hand in it at all because James Cunningham was too short-sighted to see her genius. Oh, never! I'll have you know that I'm one of the most accomplished surgeons in the world and I'm by far the most brilliant surgical hand at King's College. Only because you conspired to keep Petra's hand off the scalpel. Now, unless you had anything else you wish to say to me, I shall take my leave. Good day to you. As Erasmus fumed his way back to the hidden laboratory, he considered the ridiculous pressures Petra faced in her every attempt to create meaningful science. She was not allowed to simply conceive and investigate theories as her male counterparts did. No wonder she was so determined to explore and document the complete ramifications of transmigration herself before turning the research over to the university. No wonder she was often so bloody single-minded. His own academic pursuits were praised and supported, and then published with his name proudly and prominently linked. By the time he met Abigail in the laboratory, Erasmus was newly dedicated to saving Petra from her own worse impulses whilst simultaneously supporting her quest to lay claim to her place in scientific history. Sir, what happened in Paris? Oh, nothing to be alarmed about. As far as my person, I inhabited a street urchin that was starving, and even though I found broth and bread, it was not enough to stave off the ravages of hunger. Oh, so you didn't find Petra? Oh, no, I did. She was at La Charge de l'Affaires. Oh, she went to visit Calypso. But wouldn't it have been easier just to use the telephone? I do not think Petra considers transmigrating hard. For her, it was most likely just expedient. (laughs) You're probably right. Only Petra Sage would consider ripping her consciousness from her body via electrocution as expedient. So then, if all is well with Petra, why are we here? Because all is not well with Petra. I overheard a conversation between she and Calypso that has me worried. And so, as the professor fills Abigail in on what he learned in Paris and tells her of the infuriating conversation with Dr. McNeish, we will pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, Sagents. This is Chip Michael from the Tales of Sage and Savant. I'm going to be attending the COGS Expo 2019 Steampunk Celebration, May 17th to 19th, 
Parsippany, New Jersey. COGS, C-O-G-S, stands for Community Organized Gathering of Steampunks. The theme for the second expo is COGS Tulu, Victorian monsters and science fiction legends. Performers include Victor and the Bully, Human Wine, A Halo Called Fred, Infinis Mortis, Hubris, Conveyance Dance Project, Steampunk Studios, the Munchausen Society, and many more. COGS Espo is also proud to be hosting a Mastermakers panel featuring Thomas Dean Wilford, Tobias McGurry, Wheeler Doc Stone, Mickey Flint, Brian Fadras, Alita Pardalis, and others. Membership to this nonprofit community organized gathering of steampunks is through a donors club. The lowest level, Steel Donor, is only $25 and gets you entrance to the expo and all the public events and performances of the whole weekend. Copper, bronze, and brass donor levels get you access to special events such as themed teas and themed dinners, as well as other perks. The themed teas and dinners will also be available a la carte, but attendance will be limited. For more information, see www.cogs-expo.com. I hope to see you all there. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. The community-organized gathering of steampunks known as COGS Expo will introduce you to Victorian monsters and science fiction legends. And now, back to our show. The professor caught Abigail up to date on his suspicions of the doctor's activities. I believe that Petra understands her precarious position. Dr. McNeish is no more a fan of hers than Cunningham was. If he is appointed as provost of the medical school, she will be back on thin ice. I think she's being intemperate in her approach to the research because she's trying to nail down the details before the appointment is made. In that way, she might secure university approval and standing. But this transmigratory cohabitation you heard mentioned... Is that the inhabiting a living subject line of inquiry? We need to figure that out for certain. Maybe there's some further clue in her research notes. You look at the calculations on the boards and I'll check her desk. They search the most obvious places and turn up nothing illuminating. So they move on to searching the entirety of the laboratory. Well, that's odd. Cunningham's closet is locked once again. There'd be no reason to lock it now that his body is no longer in residence. Here, I've got the key. Hmm. That is strange. The key won't fit. Well, that doesn't make... Oh, she changed the lock again, huh? Well, no matter. I know a few tricks. The professor kneels and pulls a packet of lockpicks from his boot. It is the work of a few moments to turn the tumblers, and they are in. The room is a disheveled mess. The center of the space is a clean surgical table and assorted equipment and instruments, but around that circle of stark cleanliness is a haphazard ring of old tables, rickety chairs, and a battered credenza, all overflowing in an effluvient mess. Stacks of readouts teeter on a three-legged stool. The credenza is scattered with piles of Edison cylinders, the grooves of recording apparent on a few that she carelessly set down without sleeves. Spread across the surgical table are a series of glass plate slides, each one holding a slice of what I presume is Mix Cunningham's brain. What are you up to, Petra Sage? Shall I play these logs? I think we'd better. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 11th of March, 1896. 
My tests prove that Calypso was correct. The condition of epilepsy does create the factors necessary for occupation of a living host. I've thus far successfully occupied the living forms of Edgar Allan Poe and Lewis Carroll, both repeated sufferers. The physical linkage Erasmus discovered between an article owned by the person and the transmigration trajectory has proven out. And thanks to father's obsession with scribblers, I had access to personal items from each of these authors. I should like to try going further back and visiting another famous sufferer of epilepsy, Julius Caesar. But getting my hands on an item the emperor had actually owned is next to impossible without the help of Erasmus. And I've not yet decided how I can best convince him of the legitimacy of this line of research. Well, you cannot. You cannot convince me, Petra, because it is immoral. She really is attempting to take over living bodies. I just can't wrap my head around that. She believes that transmigration without the trauma of triage is the way forward. But there is no way to secure consent from the host body. Oh, I told her that. She obviously didn't listen. I think we better listen to the rest of these. Yes, you're right. Shall I get us chairs? Yes. And how about I make us a pot of strong tea? They spent the remainder of the afternoon reading files and listening to Edison logs. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 16 March, 1896. Today I once again visited Mr. Poe, and I'm astonished at how complacent he has become to my presence. My recent visit found him in a tavern in Baltimore in 1849. It was a brisk autumn day, and Mr. Poe and I had quite a conversation, where he confessed to me that he quite looked forward to my visits. This is the exact result I have been looking for in my cohabitation studies. If it were possible to transmigrate into living people without inflicting trauma of any sort, imagine the uses of the technology. We could enter the minds of people who stand at critical junctures of history. We could stop wars before they start. We could tailor medical intervention to the precise needs of the patient. It would be revolutionary. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, she killed Poe! What? I think, if I remember right, Edgar Allan Poe died in a tavern in Baltimore in 1849. His cause of death was unknown, but... What if multiple invasions of a foreign consciousness caused his death? What if Petra's experiments were too much for his fragile brain? We have to tell her. We have to stop her. This line of inquiry must end. Professor, I think we have more problems than that. What? What have you found? This stack of pages are handwritten logs, all from the last week. Listen. Diary, Dr. Petronilla Sage, 28 March, 1896. By shifting the geographic markers, markers, I've I've been been able able to return to to the far future, just as Calypso suggested. The city is a remarkable place. Great swaths of forest cut through everything. People travel in tubular train cars in what appears to be a giant pneumatic system. There is a beautiful blue lake with an island in the center. The building on that island looks as if it is somehow folded in on itself, angles turning into corners, and great planes of glass jut upwards reflecting the sun and sparkle from the surface of the water. Calypso says it is based on the artwork of a man named Escher, who isn't born yet in my time. That building is the center of everything. It is the place that was built based on my science, and it will have the answers to my questions. The only thing is, I cannot approach directly, even in a borrowed body. 
I would be found out. Since the accidental breach Erasmus and I caused last year, they've installed a brain scanner that can report anomalous brain activity. Calypso says that each consciousness interacts with a living brain tissue in a unique pattern, and thanks to something that happens in the year 2146, they now have my pattern on file. I'm going to have to decide whether I travel to 2146 or not. If I do not go, they will not get the pattern for my consciousness. But then how would they have it for Calypso to know about? There was a smudge out part here, a big ink blot like her pen ruptured or something. It picks up in the middle of the sentence. To track down Wei Boyong and see if he can clarify some things for me. Only after I've spoken with him would it make sense to enter the building on Lake Recondite. She went back to the far future? She is contemplating breaking all the rules we've established. Before our duo can decide what to do with the information they have discovered, the recall chimes sound and the doctor comes home. Right. We should leave everything as we found it. it. It wouldn't do to have her angry because we've broken her trust. You uh, distract her. Well, hello, doctor. Welcome home. Abigail, <laughs> you didn't need to be here. Oh, you know me. Just checking on my creatures. Silly girl, give me a moment to change out of this Faraday armor and we can have some tea. Oh, yeah, that would be lovely. Petra! Oh, hello, Erasmus. I did not expect that you would be here. You did not expect it because you swanned off to Paris without me. Don't be cross, Erasmus. I just needed to have a chat with Calypso. And what are you doing in the lab anyhow? We were supposed to be transmigrating together today, had you forgotten? Look, I'm not sure why you have such a bee up your bonnet. We can transmigrate together tomorrow, just one day later than planned. I'm sorry, pet. I don't mean to be cross. I, I missed you. Go get changed. We can talk over tea. We have much to discuss. And so the professor plans to challenge his love on the morality of her methods, on the death of Edgar Allan Poe, and on the wisdom of revisiting the far future. But he will do so over a nice pot of tea, just as all civilized people would do. Will the doctor respond well to this confrontation? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for Season 3 was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by A Halo Called Fred. Check them out at ahalocalledfred.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Cogs Expo. Episode 309, A Friend Indeed, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. 
And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.